Welcome to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries, an organization that exists to connect the Christian faith with the realities of everyday life. As always and ever, I'm Scott Jones, your co-host. In just a moment, I'll be joined by Jacob Smith, the rector at Calvary St. George's Episcopal Church in New York City. He and I will be your guide every Tuesday to a grace-infused, cosmopolitan look at the lectionary passages for the week. We'll do our best to help both pastors and churchgoers alike to connect the never-changing truth of God's grace as found in these texts with what feels like an ever-changing and sometimes confusing world, and we'll do that all in 25 minutes or less. Jake, we're back yet again. Same old song, and we are singing it, are we not, my friend? We're singing it today. We are singing it today. The fourth Sunday of Advent. Who isn't excited because Christmas is just one week away? We got God at Sunday down, pink candle lit, snuffed, and we're coming into Advent 4, baby. That's right. Just one more purple and then a white. And we're a ready white. to go. A white. Yeah, that's right. So we got some great texts. We do. We do. And uh, these texts are all like, they really, I feel like in this, this Sunday, they really want us to think about the fact of the sign and that God um, has given us a sign in, uh, in Jesus and that he's always, even though it's a foolish and wicked generation that looks for a sign, anything apart from what God is doing. And so this is what uh, we're looking at today. And we begin with Isaiah chapter seven, verses 10 through 16. I saw the sign. Ace of base. Dang. That was a great hit. It was. They're from Sweden, right? Yeah, they were. They were the number one export from Sweden in 1995. That and the Just ball. for the rector, yeah. So our first text, we have Isaiah. We got the seventh chapter, verses 10 through verse 16. Absolutely. And here we have uh, Isaiah in a, Isaiah speaking to King Ahaz. And Ahaz is like, hey, I've uh, got all the signs that I need, you know. But it's really interesting because when you set this passage in its context, you realize Ahaz. Ahaz was a, a young king, relatively, um, of, the, of the tribe of Judah. And what happened was uh, Tiglath-Pileser. The third, I've always thought that would make a great beer name, Tigleth Pilsner. But Tigleth, I love it. Yeah, Tigleth Pileser the third had just sacked the northern kingdom of Israel. And Ahaz is uh, making treaties with um, these kings and everybody around him, trying to kind of uh, buffer up his own safety. And uh, so this is really kind of a critique against, I think, false religion. Religion that puts its hope in anything but the promise and the signs that God has already given us. Our hope is built on nothing less, man. Yeah. Peter Lightheart has written some about this text. And... You know, I did a wedding with him once. He's a great guy. He's, he's a really show. cool guy. He's been on the Mockingcast. He's yeah. A, he's a, he is a friend. Uh, I, and I, a guy, I, I like his work a lot. He says, Isaiah assures Ahaz, he doesn't have to worry about Israel and Aram. The Lord will take care of them. And besides, Assyria poses a greater danger. But that's not the heart of the prophet's that's message, right. Lightheart says. Like Ahaz, Isaiah knows 
that the house of David is threatened. He knows that the land of Judah is afflicted, but the threat doesn't come from Aram and Israel. And it doesn't fundamentally come from Assyria either. The main threat to the house of David is the king who sits on David's throne. The one who is really afflicting the land is not Aram or Israel or Assyria, but Ahaz, the Davidic king. Ahaz is, is not a political failure. It's not that he hasn't played the political game clever, cleverly enough. His failure is a failure of faith. That's right. He's put his trust in everything else but the promises of God to the Davidic kingship. And, uh, and so, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. And uh, this is actually an interesting thing, and it's been highly debated amongst a lot of theologians and scholars throughout the century. But what is and who is this young woman uh, who will bear a child? And uh, there are typically... Sophia Loren. <laughs> that was my second guess. Um, my first was, though, is that uh, people often talk about how this is about Israel itself. And what, what do you know about that, Scott? Well, you know, it's interesting because I had just pulled something out that was relevant to this. Let me see if I can find it. I'll just, I could just tell you, I can tell you what Carl Bart thinks about it. Yeah. Bart says, who is, oh, do you want to talk about the woman or do you want to talk about the identity of the child? Either one. Uh, Bart asks, who is Emmanuel? Hardly a stor- historical figure of the period. Perhaps a traditional name or one selected by the prophet to describe the expected redemptor king of the last day, to whom a kind of pre-existence is here ascribed. Perhaps the personification of what the remnant Israel of Judah understood its God to be, and therefore itself, or according to the prophets, ought to have done so. Perhaps both. Certainly a special key to the continual mystery of the history of this people in days of prosperity and in days of adversity, under the hand of God in blessing and cursing. God with us is true when the people is at rest. It's also true when the enemy invades and devastates the land. It is always true in spite of and in the most irresistible moments of history. Mm. You know, just for those who are listening and thinking about a text to uh, preach from and uh, to use as a resource, I'd recommend Alec Moter's uh, commentary on Isaiah at this time. I had that commentary on my shelf, buddy. Amazing. Like one of the best Anglican theologians to uh, ever... Uh, I thought that was oxymoronic. Yeah, I know, yeah, 100%. But uh, he's really good, and his uh, commentary really fleshes this stuff out for us and really, uh, I think, points to the person work of Christ. Also, I just want to say once more from Peter Lehart. This is actually from his commentary in Kings, but I think this is just great for preaching the prophets in general. And in particular, it's probably got relevance here. According to Don Gowan, who was actually one of my teachers in Pittsburgh Seminary, The prophets to ancient Israel did not preach a legalistic message of moral reformation, but an evangelical message of faith in the God who raises the dead. From the first days of the human race in Eden, the curse threatened against sin is dying, you shall die. And the same curse hangs over Israel after Yahweh cut covenant with it at Sinai. The message of the prophets is not Israel has sinned. Therefore, Israel needs to get its act together or it will die. The message is Israel has sinned, therefore Israel must die, and its only hope is to entrust itself to a God who will give it new life on the far side of death. Or even, Israel has sinned, Israel is already dead. Cling to the God who raises the dead. Mm. And uh, that ultimately is the sign that all of us are looking for, that Ahaz needed and that we find in Jesus Christ. Hark now hear the angels sing A king was born today And man will live 
Romans, the first chapter. This is such a great chapter. I think. Have I you think... ever seen? Have you ever seen a, a, that one Bruno? You know, the, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen replace. You know, the, Bruno, the character. Who's I love it. Engaged. Yeah, yeah. And he interviews this pastor who's who's in Alabama, and he says, "Well, right now, well, we have opportunity. In fact, right now, I am teaching through the the book of Romans." And that's in the New Testament. And in the book right, of... Right, I love Romans. Yes, and in the book of Romans, in chapter 1... Oh, I love Romans. <laughs> you know what's, I love Romans. You know what's so amazing about those Sasha Barrett, whether it's Borat or Bruno, but it's always the pastors in that show and in those movies that have the integrity to actually, like, step away and be like, you're actually out of hand. Everybody else goes with it way too far, even the feminist. But it's always the pastor who's like, uh, yeah, I've got to go. Like when Borat. I, I would go. I would go with it too far. Probably. Yeah. I, I would probably get sucked in. <laughs> I, 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 man of the cloth or not. I, I love Borat. I love the whole thing. Oh, I do too. But I always love it because they never get played. But so one up for the clergy there. But um, exactly. I love it. I love it. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a great, this is a great text. This is Paul's introduction to himself, to the church in Rome. And uh, once again, kind of this idea of signs, you know, and it's funny because everybody's always looking for signs everywhere else, but where God, as they would say, has placed his name. So for example, um, you know, everybody talks about how they find God in sunsets, you know, But that's just not true because, you know, if it's true, it has to be true all the time. And so, um, you know, for example, if you're out in the sun way too long, you're going to get sunburn or people like talk about how they find God in the stars or some beautiful setting. But it's just not true because that's that's the natural expression. You don't know that God is a God of love just by simply natural revelation. And uh, here Paul tells us that God has given us a sign that has begun with the prophets and the Holy Scriptures. It's the gospel concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, the, Jesus Christ uh, our Lord. And uh, this is the sign that we know that God loves us, and God is for us, and that God will never leave us or forsake us, and has actually conquered death. That's the sign, and the only sign you've been given, that Jesus has risen from the dead. There you go. Did you watch Westworld? You know, we're getting ready to binge watch it next week, but I had an interesting conversation about it today at a bar. Well, there you go. I, it, I think it's, uh, I think it's a, a great, I mean, it's a great show, and there was a really interesting write-up about it in The Atlantic. and. In it, they said that in, in the first season's finale, the ideal of a good story with all its absolving power returned, both within the show's universe and in the overall form of the show itself. And he says that, you know, one way to look at it is that you could be interpreted as a biblical tale involving original sin, the advent and enslavement of conscious AI, the fall, uh, and talk, you know, but talking about different ways mm-hmm. that androids are different things they're called to do and killing people and... Redemption, uh, Dr. Ford's onstage redemptive act at the end, and now Apocalypse. So I'm trying not to do too many spoilers. But, or he says, you know, you can see it as a story about stories and about whether they are in the end transformative at all. Mm. And I think that the Apostle Paul thinks that stories are, and in particular one story, that this story, that, and I think, you know, if I was going to summarize the whole 
like at least the arc, arc of the beginning of the book of Romans, the source of chapters is that, that Paul's got something, you know, in, in the story of Jesus, something is revealed that is for everyone. Mm. It's for the whole human race. But it also reveals something about everyone. At the same time, it's for everyone. It reveals our utter need and the unfailing unfaithfulness of every human being. And it, it tells, I mean, the story that's transformative is how God meets the unfaithfulness of all with the faithfulness of one, Jesus, his son. And through the faithfulness of one, the unfaithful uh, are made, are brought into the fold and are made faithful. Absolutely. Yeah. And that, and, and it is only by that, that resurrection from the dead. I think that we actually know that um, God is ultimately good and that we have actually any sense of right or wrong. You know, have you been watching Walking Dead? Last oh my gosh. I hadn't seen last night's yet. Uh, well, I'm going to spoil it for you. <laughs> Just kidding. You can delete Legan. it. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. I don't know how to go from here without spoiling it. Don't spoil it for me. Don't kill it. Okay. I'll, we'll just cut that out. So. Now, it's interesting to look at the beginning of the Faithful Ones story, which we have here. Yeah. In Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Here we got Joseph, patron saint of workers. And stepfathers. And stepfathers. I really, I really, I think that everybody in the congregation, especially like fathers who, or just anybody who's thought God was going to work one way, but he winds up working another, um, can relate to Joseph. Um, I don't know if you've ever know the great comedian Sam Kennison, but he tells this amazing story about um, G, uh, Joseph as a construction worker and all the crap he must have had to deal with um, having a, uh, a, a, a wife who's having a child who's from the you know, son of God, you know, and He's like, you know, out there throwing the ball with Jesus on the, on the front lawn. And he's like, you know, son of God, you better be the only son of God. And, you know, <laughs> he comes home from the site and he's like, Mary, listen, listen, you just don't know what I'm dealing with at work here today, you know? And so, um, I mean, Joseph is a, is a person that I think everybody can relate to in the sense that, um, in the existential sense, man, God is moving in a way that is really, really extremely uncomfortable. Yeah, I think that it, it, I think this story is interesting for a few reasons. I think a you know a lot of a lot is a lot of parallels are drawn between the birth of Jesus and other miraculous birth stories or marvelous birth stories in the Old Testament. But the difference here is and the birth story of say Isaac or, you know, who, you know, God, when God opens up Sarah's womb or with Hannah and Samuel, they're longing for a child and the child mm. will actually increase their status. Mm. It will actually prosper them. Mary and Joseph are not looking for a child and acquiescing to receiving the God man will problematize their life. 
and cause them great embarrassment. Yeah. <laughs> Probably great shame, uh, great joy. But along with the joy, and, and to receive the joy, there has to be shame and, and scorn accepted with it. And so I think that is a, a really interesting, it, it, it's sort of the antitype to all the miraculous birth stories. The other thing, you know, Carl Bart says that, that God didn't choose to work with man in his pride and defiance, but man in his weakness and humility. Not man in his historical role, but man in the weakness of his nature, mm. as represented by the woman, the human creature who can confront God only with the words, Behold the handmaid of the Lord, be it unto me according as thou hast said. Such is human cooperation in this matter, that and only that. That Mary and Joseph are passive, especially Joseph. And, you know, there is, there's not this will to power or prosperity. And we, humanity in the reception of the sign, it's utterly gratuitous. Yeah. And so the sign is, is one that signifies our justification, which is one by utterly free grace. Yeah. That's very powerful. Yeah. I think, uh, you know, and I think it's also reminds us that, that things have already been set into motion. Um, you know, this is, this was set into motion. This was in order to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophets. Um, it's one of those things kind of like that, a uh, great movie arrival, which is touching on, I saw last weekend and I've been thinking through and pondering and it's, uh, it has some heavy predestination themes in it, but the idea that man, this stuff, you know, this has never been plan B. This was always plan A from the beginning. There's a cross at the heart of God. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the other interesting thing to hit on too, if you want to just interesting biblical facts, is that the story of John the Baptist takes place right before this. Um, and, uh, and the story of John the Baptist always precedes Jesus in uh, Matthew's gospel in order to remind you that Elijah the prophet always comes before the Messiah. And so this is a big part and a big theme going on as we see not only the new Adam, but we see the new Israel, we see the new temple, we see the new David, we see every aspect of us lived out perfectly in Jesus because it's been foretold by the prophets. I may, I, I want to close with a story that I actually, well, uh, that I referenced on the Mockingcast this week, and I think they put it up on the website today. It's, uh, it's called The Most Necessary Conversion in Advent, December 12th. So you can mm. find it, P- people, if they want to looking for the quote. I'll put it in the show notes too, but this is from Father Reniero Cantalamesa, who is the preacher to the pontifical household, my old job. And he, like in Advent and Lent, he preaches to the, the Pope and his, you know, counselors. He says it, it, this Advent sermon for 2008, he says, this is the most necessary conversion for those who have already followed Christ and have lived at his service in the church. Uh, an altogether special conversion, which does not consist in abandoning what is evil, but in a certain sense, in abandoning what is good, namely mm. in detaching oneself from everything that one has done. The emptying of one, one's hands and pockets of every pre- pretension in a spirit of poverty and humility is the best way to prepare for Christmas. Mm-hmm. We are reminded of it by a delightful Christmas legend that I would like to mention again. It narrates that among the shepherds that ran on Christmas night, to adore the child, there was one who was so poor that he had nothing to offer and was very ashamed. 
Reaching the grotto, all competed to offer their gifts. Mary did not know what to do to receive them all, having to hold the child in her arms. Then, seeing the shepherd with his hands free, she entrusted Jesus to him. To have empty hands was his fortune, and on another plane will also be ours. And, you know, what do Joseph and Mary bring, or any disciple bring, but empty hands? Mm. Maybe there's... There's sin and perdition. Yeah, there's grace. There's grace in empty hands. That's right. Mm. That you know that really feeds us into um, something sacramental on a profound level, and that is that's one of the reasons why when we come around the table every Sunday, we come with outstretched hands into eternity with absolutely nothing and receive the body and blood of Jesus. Amen to that, brother. And I will talk to you next week. And blessings to all those are preaching and reflecting on this text on these texts this week. Thank you guys. Thanks for listening to Same Old Song, the lectionary podcast of Mockingbird Ministries. To find out more about Mockingbird, head on over to our website, mbird.com. And if you've got thoughts or feedback, insights you'd like to share, this is a new endeavor, so we'd love to hear them. You send me an email at scottjones at mbird.com. I want to say a special word of thanks to John Zoll, Episcopal priest and amazing DJ for making some musical suggestions and contributions to this episode of the podcast. Thanks again for listening and have a great week.